0: We're going to jump in. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it now. If you have your smartphone app, you can use that too. Uh, I usually preach out of the ESV, so that'll give you uh, an opportunity to flip to that. If you don't have the ESV, we'll have the words up on the screen for you. I know sometimes it's difficult to follow along if we're all using different translations, but I invite you to flip to that while we get going here. So yeah, if I haven't met you, my name is Tom Logue, along with my wife, Ebony. She's back taking care of the kids, she's serving us, uh, we have the privilege of providing leadership to this church plant, along with a team of amazing people that moved, relocated their lives, reoriented their lives to be a part of this church, and some amazing people that are here, that live here already, that have kind of jumped on board, and we are thrilled to be able to experience this kind of uh, newness together and like I said, we're, we're a church plant. That means we're brand new. So the cool thing is, is if you're brand new, we're brand new. We're all brand new. It's a safe kind of place to be in. Um, and I feel like we're kind of like an infant, right? Like you've heard some of the guys talk about this idea of new life and, and being an infant. And I think that today is kind of a unique day in our development as a church plant, okay? So for, for those of you guys that have kids or those of you that have spent any time with children, um, you know that their development takes time, <laughs> It's not something that happens overnight. It is like it takes a while. Like this morning, I told my daughter, my youngest daughter, Vivian, she knows she's not allowed to jump on the bed, and we're trying to get ready, and she's jumping on the bed, and I'm like, Vivian, stop, and she jumps and like flings herself onto the bedroom door, like smokes her eye, like right here, guys. So if you see it, it looks terrible. She's okay, but this idea of development, it takes time. Like it takes time for us to grow. but I think one of the greatest joys as being a parent is you get to have that front row seat in the development of your child. And uh, one of, the, one of the, my most favorite things and one of the greatest joys as a parent is when you uh, hear your, your kid's first word. Uh, Amelia, my eldest daughter, her first word was mama. And I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> but guess what Vivian, my youngest daughter's first words were? Mama. <laughs> So I am O for two when it comes to the uh, first words there, but these first words, they're a big deal developmentally. And they're a big deal because words are kind of the primary way we use to communicate with each other. The primary way that we engage with each other, that we interact with each other, and I think you've seen it as kids grow over time, their vocabulary grows, right? They learn more words. But here's the thing when it comes to developing a vocabulary. It's just as important that the words that you're learning, you actually have an accurate meaning of what those words are. So you can learn a ton of, you can learn lots of words, but if you don't have an accurate meaning of what those words actually are, it kind of defeats the whole purpose. So here's the thing, Uh, how many of you guys have heard people use the word literally completely wrong? (laughs) I'm convinced an entire generation doesn't know what the word literal literally means. Uh, the other day I heard someone say this phrase. They said, um, uh, they said that movie was so funny I literally died laughing. (laughs) And uh, the problem with that is that the word literal means without exaggeration. And they used it to exaggerate their perspective on the movie. Now, I think for us, that's like not an alarming statement in America, in Southern California. But if you go to like Japan, or like the Middle East, when not non-sarcastic, very literal, literal uh, cultures, that is gonna be so shocking to them. If they were to overhear that statement, that movie was so funny, I literally died laughing, they would be, they would be alarmed. <laughs> they would think something along the lines of like, oh my goodness, that must be a terrible movie. They're gonna wanna tell all their friends not to go see the movie. They're gonna think that you're a ghost because somehow you died and you're still talking to them. So here's this idea of knowing words, but not knowing what they actually mean. It's important. If we're not clear on what they actually mean and what they literally mean, it can be pretty confusing. So that's why in such an important stage in the development of this church plant, that's why we're beginning with this specific series that we're starting today called What is the Church? Because if a church is actually gonna be planted and over time developed, then we need to all be on the same page. We need to all be very clear on what the church actually is. And I think, uh, I think we can look to, um, there's a lot of different sources that we could look to to help us define what the church is, okay? Um, depending on who you ask, you could get several different answers on what the church is. Oftentimes I hear the church referred to as a building. It's like this place. And by the way, if you, some, of the, some of our friends at Crosspoint, that's the church, this is their building, uh, they let us use this space. They've been so gracious to us and supportive to us, so encouraging. They probably aren't here, but I just want to give them a hand because it's a very gracious, generous thing to do. Um, but oftentimes I do. I hear people refer to the church as a building, like this one that we're in now. I heard people refer to the church as an event that you attend on Sunday morning. Like she attends this church and he attends that church. I hear people refer to the church as like a, a nonprofit organization, a nonprofit religious organization. Um, or my least favorite, a business. The church is just a business, they just want your money. That's what they're after. But our desire, friends, our desire is to be rooted in the scriptures, the Bible. Our desires to be rooted in the scriptures. We're not going to be looking to American culture to define the church. We're not going to be looking to church culture to define the church. We're not even going to be looking to secular culture to define the church. We're going to be looking at what the Bible tells us that the church is. And it's cool if you spend any time reading the Bible, you'll see that there are several beautiful metaphors for what the church is in the New Testament. And each of the following weeks, we'll probably be doing five to six weeks in this series, we're gonna be going through each of those different aspects. But tonight, we're gonna focus on the most frequently used metaphor in all of scripture to describe the church, and that is a family. And I think you've heard some of the guys already mention this idea of like deep relationship, familial relationship. I refer to these guys as my brothers. It's not a joke, it's a real thing. But I think some of us, when, when you hear me say Family, you you cringe a little bit because, um, I think uh, I think family for some of us isn't your most favorite people in your life. And I think, um, in fact, I know for for many people, family can be their greatest source of pain, their greatest source of worry, or fear, or disappointment, or even shame. And I think for others of you, when you hear me speak of family, you think, well, like, I already have a family. I already have one. I guess I'm good then. I guess I'm covered. Because if if the church is a family and I already have one, it sounds pretty unnecessary to me. And I think for others, this isn't a new concept. You've heard this before. This is kind of a review. But here's the thing. Regardless of where you are on this spectrum of how family has had an effect on you, If the church, if what the Bible says is true, if the church really is a family, then that has two massive implications on us. If the church is a family, it hugely influences two things, and that's what we're going to spend some time on going through tonight. First is this. It has a huge influence on how we relate to God and how we relate to other people following Jesus. Okay? So go ahead and grab your Bibles, flip to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter six. Okay. So these are the words of Jesus, okay? In the middle of the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus begins to teach on prayer. And simply put, prayer is engaging with God. God. Alright. So Jesus has his followers all around him, and he says this, Matthew chapter nine or chapter six, starting at verse nine. He says this. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Okay, so Jesus says that the proper way to pray, the proper way to engage with God, is to engage with Him as Father, okay? Jesus is making a very shocking claim here, okay? He uses the words hallowed, which basically just means supreme, okay? And he also uses the words kingdom, and this refers to God being king, to God being like a ruler, okay? He's saying that God, the creator of all things, the most supreme being of all, the king of the universe, relates to his people as a father relates to his children, the original language that Jesus uses there is the Aramaic word Abba. Some of you guys have heard this before. He uses the word Abba, and Abba can be translated dear daddy. It's this this intimate, affectionate word that children would use for their father. It implies fatherly love, protection, provision, and all the security and the confidence that comes along with receiving those things from Abba, from receiving those things from Daddy. Um, I can remember the first time I took my eldest daughter, Amelia, swimming. Uh, she's super cute. Guys, if you haven't met her, she's a, she's a gem. She's a joy uh, to be with, and I remember, I don't remember how old she was, forgive me, but I remember uh, Ebony and I got her this super cute bathing suit, one piece, super cute bathing suit. We got her to the floaties at Costco, you know, like we got her decked out, she was ready to go, she was excited, and the moment we get to the pool, the f- fear kind of sets in. Kids, he's a big, big, large body of water, and it's kind of like, I don't know, I have, I have second thoughts about this. Daddy, come with me. I'm like, okay, of course, I'll come with you. I'm not gonna throw you into the pool. Like So I get, I get with her in the pool, and she's got her floaties, and she's ready to go, and she's like stuck to me. She's clinging to my neck, she won't let go, she's afraid, but over time, my presence with her in that pool, it started to develop this confidence in her to swim. She started to kind of feel more confident. And eventually, she swims without daddy, and without even the floaties. Why? Because she knows that Abba is there. She knows that daddy is there, and the security that she feels from me develops a confidence in her to swim, to do something that she once feared. So my daughter's ability to swim is directly related to the fact that she knows that I love her. Think about that. Her ability to swim is directly resulted from from the fact that she knows that daddy loves her. And here's the thing, friends, I'm convinced that there are far too many people inside the church, outside the church, that are living in fear simply because they don't relate to God as Abba. They don't relate to him as daddy, as a loving father. They live in fear of what people think about them. Live in fear about not having enough money. Living in fear about the the what if. What if I lose my job? What if I don't get the promotion and things don't go the way I want them to at work? What if something happens to my kids? What if I never get married? All these fears, all these insecurities. Friends, is that you? Is that you? Like, do you, do you consistently find yourself afraid at a heart level? The better question is, do you know God as the loving, protecting Abba Father that he is? And here's the thing, like listen, I I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care if you've been a Christian for five days, five years, 50 years, it doesn't matter. Do you relate to God as a loving father like today? Like right now in this moment? Or are you being deceived? Are you being lied to that he's absent? Maybe you believe the lie that he's forgotten about you that you don't matter. Um, so we, the last five years we spent um, in San Diego, and uh, I might have upset them. Uh, the last five years, um, my family and I, we spent in San Diego planning churches with the crew, and it was um, some of the most amazing season of our lives. Like, we loved it. The people, it was such an incredible experience. We loved this city. Um, those of you guys that have ever kind of lived near the coast, you know about waking up to the marine lair, Okay, if you know what I'm talking about, raise your hand. Don't be afraid. Put it high. Come on. So you guys know about the marine layer. You wake up in the morning, and you, you're like, I'm at the beach, and it's foggy and cold, and the marine, the marine layer is there. Um, most mornings, you wake up, the cloud covers there, it lingers, and it usually burns off around noon, and, and the sun comes out, right? And you can have fun. Uh, it's interesting, because I noticed, I didn't notice this when I, I, I'm from here, my wife and I are from here, and when we lived here, I didn't really notice it, but moving back, I realized it. The, um, the mountains south of here, we're south, this, this way. So the mountains south of here, um, if, you, if you're driving north in the 15 and you kind of drop into the Temecula Valley, you guys know what I'm talking about? So those mountains all right there, like the biggest mountain around, Palomar Mountain, I've noticed that some of the mornings you can actually see the marine layer starting to spill into the valley. And there's actually even been mornings where I've seen, like, it's been so thick, the marine layer and the fog has been so thick that it completely, it almost completely covers Mount Palomar. Mount Palomar's pretty big. It's the biggest mountain around. So you have this marine layer, co- marine layer coming in, and this fog coming in, and it almost completely covers that mountain, to the point where you can't even tell what it looks like anymore. Um, I think oftentimes we live with a sort of fatherly marine layer like a fatherly fog where our relationship with our earthly dad is like this fog that keeps us from seeing God as he truly is, as the loving, caring, consistent, faithful father that he is. And I think that fog applies even if you have a good dad, like a great dad. I have a wonderful dad, he's not a perfect man, but he really is wonderful. He raised me um, to be confident in his love for me, and that honestly had a profound impact on my life. It really did. But as great of a dad as he is and was, like the joy and the peace of knowing God as Abba Father is infinitely greater. He's had, he's had no, no other person's had a bigger effect on me in my life than my dad. But the joy and the influence that knowing God as Abba Father has had on me has been exponentially greater. And the truth is that no earthly father can accurately represent the glory of our Heavenly Father. But what is equally true is that the, the earthly dads have this huge influence on how we view God. So here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that regardless of the specifics of your relationship with your earthly father, regardless of of how much the marine layer and the fog has kind of like crept in, regardless of how much that, that fog covers the mountain, here's the cool thing. That fog, it cannot change how massive or how beautiful that mountain truly is. So as we plant this church, We're planting a community of people who relate to God as Abba, Father, as Daddy, dear Daddy. And my prayer is that we would be a people who regardless of the the foggy marine layers that we've experienced in our lives, we'd see the massive and beautiful mountain that is our Heavenly Father's love for us. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, the Apostle John, he writes to churches that he knows, churches that he loves, These are groups of people. He writes them and he deeply cares about these people. He writes that in John, uh, 1 John actually, chapter three, verse one, says this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The NIV actually gets it better, it says, excuse me, it says, see what great love The Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. John wants us to, he wants the church to see the love of God. So, what does the love of God look like? What is this great fatherly love, this massive love, this mountain of love that John's referring to? What does it actually look like? How does it play out? Go ahead, you have your Bibles still, hopefully. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. So this is a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Real people, real place. Okay, He writes this letter to these people, to this church. And honestly, I think this is one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture. It's one that I refer to often when I'm struggling to believe that God is my Abba, God is my daddy. He loves me affectionately. Writing to the church in Ephesus, Paul says this. Ephesians chapter one, starting in verse three. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, he's talking about the church, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that's the church. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he, there's a word again, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Okay, there is so much in these nine verses, like we could do... Uh, We could do a a super long series on these nine verses, but what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna focus on a couple things here that I believe are absolutely stunning, okay? It says God chose out of love. Okay, I don't know where you stand theologically when it comes to the sovereignty of God. Okay, that's the idea of God's control, like his rule versus human man's choice, okay? Man's free will. I don't know where you stand on that and how those two things kind of coexist, but here's the thing. Christians kind of tend, can tend to disagree on, uh, on this spectrum, okay, and how the sovereignty of God plays out. But here's something that all Christians agree on. All Christians agree on, and what you need to see from this passage is that the church is made up of people who God has chosen to adopt. Think about adoption for a moment, I actually have some friends. Uh, they uh, have gone through the adoption process, like they've adopted someone. Adopted a girl, a little girl. And I remember them telling me how it all went down. I remember uh, them explaining how much time it takes to go through the paperwork. I remember them telling me about how like they have to get the, the background checks and um, like they have to get approval from you know, the, the organization. And, and I remember they saved and saved and saved their money Uh, I I believe it was somewhere around $30,000 to adopt this child, okay? And that was a lot for them. Like, they really sacrificed a ton. And I remember them, um, I remember them describing meeting some of the orphan kids and, um, you know, the kids that are gonna get adopted and they walk into this room and, and then they see her And the 30 grand that they'd saved and they saved and they saved it instantly meant nothing to them. Because they wanted that little girl to join their family. They wanted her. They chose her. Friends, do you realize what it means to be a chosen, adopted child of God? It means God the most important the most powerful, the most famous being of all time walks into the room and says, I want you. He desires you. He says, that's my boy, that's my girl. I want that one. The church is people who relate to God as Abba Father. Look back at verse five with me here. He predestined us for adoption, us as the church, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Okay, it says adopted as sons. This is not a gender issue. This is not like something that just applies, like sorry ladies, you, you're, you're in trouble, you're screwed, like go away. No, it's not what he's talking about at all. In fact, it, aff- it applies to both male and female. Um, the reason it says sons is because in the first century, when this is written, uh, the firstborn son was given the father's inheritance, okay? So in the family, I'm, I'm the firstborn son of my family. My brother, Mark, is my younger brother. So the firstborn son was, was the heir to the father's estate, okay? So all of his possessions, all of his property, all of his wealth, all of it goes to the firstborn son, Okay? back in verse 11 that we wrapped up with, it says, Paul says that the church has obtained an inheritance. Okay, are you connecting these two ideas? The church has obtained an inheritance. He says that because the church is the chosen, adopted children of God, adopted as sons, as heirs. Are you tracking with this idea? Okay. And they have rights to an inheritance just like a firstborn son. Uh, has anybody in the room ever received an inheritance? Come on, Brad's got a great inheritance story, yeah. So I I had, uh, I got a small inheritance from my grandmother. She died when I was two, and uh, it wasn't a lot of money or anything, but it it helped uh, Ebony and I put a down payment, or part of a down payment on a house, like our first home when we first got married. So it was like a, a timely blessing for us it really was. The crazy thing about this inheritance is that I didn't even know it existed until I was like in my mid-20s, which is cool. It's great, you know? But I remember my parents telling me about it. And again, like I said, it really was like a timely blessing. When it came, it was beautiful because I was just getting married, and it was, it was a relief, and it helped us get into a home. Uh, here's the thing about an inheritance, though, right? An inheritance is not something that you can like earn. It's not something that you receive because of what you do, it's something you receive because of who you, you are. You, you inherit it, you don't earn it. I was my grandmother's grandson and therefore I received the inheritance that she had for me. Now here's the thing, for us to truly understand this idea of the church's inheritance, what the church inherits, we have to understand the reality of our condition, okay? You and I on a daily basis are imperfect people. We're imperfect people. In fact, you and I are really bad people, actually. At a heart level, we're pretty bad. Now here's the thing, don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about the way that we can cover that up. I think we're experts at covering up how crummy we are. Experts at uh, covering up how selfish we can be, how self-centered we can be. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about at a heart level, you and I are very different than God. Very different. You see, God is is holy. He's holy. That means He's totally different than us. And specifically as it relates to His goodness and His righteousness, okay? God's perfectly righteous. Righteousness is like rightness. He's perfectly righteous. He's perfectly good. He's perfectly loving forever, always, all the time. I am not. You are not. I love using this illustration. Uh, if you don't believe me, um, I think we should do like this experiment. Imagine for a second, um, imagine if I call, I took turns, and we called each person up on stage, and that microphone that I had earlier, imagine that it was like this special microphone that I could stick it on your forehead, and it would play all of your thoughts through the loudspeaker for everyone to hear. How much fun would that be? <laughs> And think about if it wasn't like your your whole life, you know what I mean? It wasn't like the really bad stuff in high school or like like a long time ago. If it was just this last week, like none of us would ever want to talk to any one of us ever again. (laughs) This church would crumble, it would be just like, okay, everyone's gonna go. The truth is, friends, that uh, God knows our thoughts. Psalm 139, it's clear, like God knows our thoughts, and the truth is that at a heart level, each of us falls way short of the righteousness of God, the rightness of God. And because of the ways that you and I, we sin against him, we rebel against him, we disobey him, and we sin against other people. We hurt other people. And here's the kicker. A holy God and a sinful person, they can't be together. Holy God and sin, they can't mix, like... They're opposites. It's like, it would, like, it would, like be, it would be like um, trying to put the two wrong ends of a magnet together. You ever try to do that? Where you, no matter how hard you try, they just, they don't stick. That means because of how you and I are like, have this sin problem, that we're hopelessly separated from him, like the Magnets. And in fact, we deserve punishment for the ways that we've rejected him in his ways, the ways that we've done our own thing. But here's the thing. God created us in his image. He created us for a purpose. He created us in his image to reflect his love and his goodness to the world around us. But over and over again, I find myself at a heart level saying, no, I want to do things my way. I'd actually rather, I'd feel way better about myself if I kind of like blew up on my wife right now. Because I'm having a crummy day and she did something that got in my way so now now I'd feel better about just kind of letting her have it. Being unkind, being unloving. We do things our way. We choose ourselves over others all the time. We gossip and tear others down. Just walk through the mall. Half of the stuff that you'll hear is like the most gnarly tearing down of other people because it makes me feel better about myself. We gossip, we lie to impress people. We take our frustrations out on our spouse and our kids. Like, I was so impatient this week. It was crazy. I found myself being like unkind, unloving to my wife. And like, I'm I'm a little ashamed to even share it with you. I mean, nothing crazy happened or anything, but I just, I get a heart level. I was like, I'm not being kind to this woman that God has given me as a gift. Like God, he called me to be her husband, to love her and care for her and serve her to live for her benefit. Like that's what a husband is. So you and I, we have this sin problem. It's at the very core of who we are. <clears throat> it's in our hearts, and our motivations, it's in our thoughts. So how in the world can sinful people who reject God in his ways be these beloved children that we're reading about in Ephesians? In love, he predestined us. He chose us for adoption to give us an inheritance. And that inheritance that he gives to his children is the perfect righteousness of Jesus. That's the inheritance. In love, the eternal Son of God, Jesus, the King of the universe, the Creator of all things, he becomes a man. It's crazy. God of the heavens becomes a man, takes on flesh. That's Jesus. Jesus lives this perfect life that you and I never could. Always loving, always good, never selfish, never rude. And he does it all in our place. And not only that, on the cross, Jesus receives the punishment for all those sins that would be played over the loudspeaker all those gross hard motivations and even the ones that actually come into, like get acted on. Jesus gets punished on the cross for every single one that you and I deserve to be punished for. In love, God adopts his children and with that adoption comes an inheritance. That inheritance is Jesus' perfect life, his perfect record credited to you. Beautiful it's crazy, it's given to you it's, it's a gift, it's grace. you cannot earn it in the same way I share with you about how like my my grandma gave that inheritance to me. I didn't even know about it for two decades. It's given as a gift. I think some of you in this room, you have an inheritance that's been waiting for you that you don't know about. It's an inheritance that reconciles you to God and it's been waiting for you. And now, because of Jesus, those magnets that can't come together, they can't quite get in there, now they lock in place and they can't be separated because of the blood of Jesus. His life in our place, his death in our place, and we get that perfect life credited to us. It's a beautiful thing that reconciles us to God. Friends, that's what makes Christianity different than every other religion. Every single religion. Every single religion says, do these things and you can get yourself right with God. Do these things and you'll be righteous. But Christianity is the complete opposite. Christianity says you can't get yourself right with God. You can't do it. You can't make yourself righteous. So, in love, Jesus did it for you in your place. He offers you his perfect righteousness as a gift because you can't manufacture your own perfect. It's totally pure. You and I are, are no longer totally pure. Religion's about what you accomplish. is about what God accomplished for you out of his love for you. So what does God's love look like? Looks like? It looks like Jesus in your place. That's what it looks like. His perfect life, his brutal death to bring you into the family of God. It's the most beautiful thing ever, friends. For those of you guys that might be wondering, like, how do I know if God chose me? Like, how do I know if I'm in God's family? Like, what's the deal here? Look at John. Go flip, the, go, go flip to the gospel of John, chapter one. <clears throat> or better, yet, I'll just read it to you. You guys can listen. The words will be on the screen. John, chapter one. How do we know if you're wondering if God chose me, if I'm in God's family, John 1, but to all, starting. this is John 1, uh, starting in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, him is Jesus, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, that his name means like everything that he is, it describes everything that he is, everything that he claimed to be, but to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. How do you know if God chose you? How do you know if you've been adopted into God's family or His adopted child? You receive him. I mean, there's, there's, there's really only two options, right? You either receive the grace that Jesus freely offers or you say no thank you and reject it. Receiving Jesus' grace looks like acknowledging your sin. Like, yep, if I stood up there with the microphone, I would be made a fool of. It would be embarrassing. There are things about me, there are things that I think, things that I do, things that I feel that are not consistent with the way that God created things to be. I mean, look around. Our planet is jacked up. It's really a mess right now. Things are so polarized, people are so in opposition to each other, poverty, um, racism, uh, like just the list goes on and on. Things are not the way they're supposed to be because this plant's full of people that are existing the way they're not supposed to be. Guys, do you see that? The only hope, the only hope is Jesus. There's two options, you receive that grace or you reject it. And rejecting it looks like that spiral that our planet's going through just out of control. Pain, suffering, things the way they're not supposed to be. Receiving Jesus' grace looks like acknowledging that sin and then trusting that Jesus in your place covers your sin. I'm almost done, I promise. Now because the church is the people who relate to God as father, that means that we have the same dad that has implications on how we relate to each other. That means the church relates to each other as brothers and sisters. <clears throat> but like I mentioned in the beginning, I think for many people, family can be their greatest source of pain, their greatest source of disappointment. But the big idea here is that God's family is is very different than even the best earthly family, even the best one that you can imagine. I wanna read you some of these uh, these, these commands we find in the New Testament, because the New Testament is full of how um, brothers and sisters and the family of God are to interact with each other. Uh, I'm just gonna read these to you. There's like dozens of these, okay? So I'm just gonna read a handful of them to so you can keep up with me. And I'm actually, I'm not gonna include um, the references of what scripture they're in, just because if you wanna hear about it, I can tell you afterwards. But for the sake of time, there's this. Be at peace with one another. How brothers and sisters and the family of God should act. Be at peace with one another. Don't envy one another. Be kind, tender-hearted and forgiving to one another. Confess sins to one another. Serve one another. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. This is a huge one. Bear one another's burdens. Speak truth to one another. Don't lie to one another. Encourage and build up one another. Pray for one another. Be hospitable to one another. And there are literally dozens, literally <laughs> dozens and dozens more. But imagine with me for just a second, like, imagine what it would be like. How amazing would it be, would it be to be a part of a family like that that served one another Imagine if everybody in the family thought more highly of others than they did of themselves. How beautiful would that be? No one in need? I mean, think of the implications of this. And this is just like 12 of the dozen of these commands. How incredible would it be? How safe would you feel? How secure would you feel? How supported would you feel? And think about your kids. Oh my goodness. Imagine growing up in a spiritual family like that, where they knew that they had brothers and sisters, aunties and uncles, mom and dad that radically loved them. Jesus, he sums up these one another's in John chapter 13. He says this. I'm going to read this to you. Just listen. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have loved one another. So in addition to relating to God as Abba Father, Jesus says that the church is the people who love one another the same way that Jesus loves them. That's crazy because Jesus loves sacrificially. Jesus loves generously, faithfully, patiently. His love for people is not dependent on their love for him. It's strong. You see the difference? That's radical love. Jesus sums up all these one another's and goes, hey, love one another the way that you've received love from me. I'm so encouraged, like, we have, we have brothers and sisters that drove from San Diego and LA, some of them multiple hours in a car, to come serve us. They don't get anything out of it. They're, in, they're holding kids that are probably screaming because I'm preaching too long. Like, they've served us. This act of loving one another because they're extended family. They love us. They pray for us. Guys, they've given so sacrificially, these these communities, they've given so sacrificially their time, their energy, their prayers, their money to see this church happen. They don't get anything out of it. When we collected the offering, one of the things we wanna be very clear on is we don't give to get God to love us. We don't give to like, get him to think more highly of us. We give in response to him giving. He's given so much to us. And it's so cool. We have this living picture of brothers and sisters here today from far, not super far, but from far, that are giving generously because they've received the generosity from Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. So I'll close with this. You guys can come up. Jesus, he he takes this whole family of God thing like really seriously. Um, In Matthew chapter 12, I'm going to read this to you. It's Nuts. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50, Jesus says this. I'm sorry, it says this, and you'll see what the words of Jesus. It says, while he, Jesus, was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside. Okay, so imagine Jesus in here. He's speaking to people. His mom and his brothers are outside, okay? And they're asking to speak with Jesus. They're asking to speak with him. And Jesus replied to the man who told him, And he told them this, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, the people in the room, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus says something really shocking here. In fact, it may have offended some of the people in the room, like maybe the couple family that left earlier, but... It's kind of a shocking thing. Jesus is saying that the family of God, the church, is thicker than even blood. Now that doesn't mean like ditch your biological family. No. Your biological family is really important, okay? Your biological family is like, yeah, it, that's not what it's saying, okay? But Jesus is saying that the family of God is a, is a deeper, hear me say this, a deeper, weightier family, Jesus is saying it's the truest family. Like, how is that possible, Jesus? Because it's a family not rooted in biology. It's a family rooted in the love of God. Friends, there's nothing stronger than the love of God. There's nothing more powerful. There's nothing greater. Nothing comes close to the power of the love of God. The love of God is so powerful, it can transform rebellious sinners into beloved sons and daughters adopted into God's family. The church, the church is a family that relates to God as Abba, Father, dear daddy. And it relates to each other as brothers and sisters. So my question for you in love is this. Are you a member of God's family? Have you received the beautiful inheritance of Jesus' righteousness, him in your place? Have you received that? If not, why not? We're planting a church. We're planting a church. We're starting a family. We're not planting an event. We're not planting a gathering. We're planting a church. Thanksgiving's coming. It's like a month away, less than a month away. I love Thanksgiving. I gather with my family. It's an event that we do every year and we eat a bomb meal and we probably, it's probably gluttonous, yeah, but we eat a great meal and we enjoy time together with the thankful hearts for the blessings in our lives, each other especially. We do Thanksgiving every year, but that Thanksgiving meal, that event, that does not define the Logue family. That's a rhythm, that's an event that my family prioritizes and enjoys, but it does not define the Logue family. In the same way, we're not planting this. This is good. This is something we prioritize, this is something we enjoy. This is something that matters, but we're planting a family. Men and women, boys and girls who relate to God as Abba Father and relate to each other as brothers and sisters. So please don't make, this, don't make the mistake that this is, this is church. We don't go to church, we are the church and we go places like Temecula and LA and San Diego We are the church. We gather throughout the week here on Sundays to offer praise to God because he's flipping worthy of it because his love has the power to transform sinners into beloved sons and daughters. So in the weeks to come, you'll hear more about how we're going to form this family. You'll hear more about gospel communities and what those are and how we're gonna grow together as a family pursuing and responding to the love of God but the church is a family who relates to God as Abba Father, dear Daddy, and relates to each other as brothers and sisters. So I have two invitations for you. I'm so glad you're here. I have two invitations for you. The first is this. I don't care if it's the first time or the millionth time. I invite you to receive the grace and the love of God and to know Him as Abba Father. It's a free gift. You cannot earn it but it's offered to you. And the second thing I invite you to is I invite you to journey with us as we become a family who knows God as daddy and, and, and knows each other as brothers and sisters. Will you pray with me? Oh God, my heart hurts for people who've had a really hard time with their family. Um, people who have been misled. We um, talked about defining terms and what, and knowing what words mean. And people who would define um, dad as something negative, or brothers and sisters as something negative, or the church as something that hurts them. And my prayer, um, Father, is that you would minister to those hearts this evening. Um, that they would know that you're bigger than that. They would know that the fog that covers the mountain is only fog. But it does not change the massive mountain that is your love, your fatherly love. And I pray, God, I, 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 I have so much faith you are cultivating a family. It's beautiful. I've seen you do it before and I can feel you doing it again. And I just want more. I just want more, Holy Spirit. So I pray that you would speak to each of us in a uniquely personal way and remind us of the joy and the peace that's greater than anything of knowing you as Father. You don't hold our past against us. You covered it. Jesus, you paid it all. Oh, how precious is your blood, Jesus. Thank you. So God be with us. I'm so excited. Thank you for loving me and not holding my past against me. In your holy name, Jesus, amen.